we basically traffic in love. We reach out to our patients. Our patients reach out to us in a loving, humane way. Because of that, we're in treacherous territory. Sex with clients. We're going to talk about it today. What more can I say? This topic sells itself. I'm Reva Stout, and you're listening to A Therapist Can't Say That, the show where we talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. And actually, I do have more to say about this. Surprise, surprise. So, sex with clients is an interesting topic in that it is both very taboo, in that very few people want to spend much time thinking about it or talking about it, and everyone tends to get really uncomfortable when someone brings it up, and that it's not really very polarizing. Many taboo topics are taboo because talking about them ignites conflict, and people are trying to avoid conflict by avoiding the topic. Sex with clients isn't like that. No one is advocating for it. There is no conflict. The consensus is that it's wrong. So the taboo is about something else. I would argue that the taboo in this case is about the fear of being in any way associated with a transgression of that magnitude and the vicarious shame by association of being part of a group whose members sometimes transgress in this way. So when sex with clients comes up, we all disavow it. Maybe someone will throw in a few tips about the importance of boundary maintenance in preventing it and then donezo. Here's the problem with that. In preparation for this episode, I did a little digging into the research on the prevalence of sexual contact between therapists and clients, which is somewhat difficult to study, but a paper published in 2017 by Alpert and Steinberg, we'll link in the show notes, reviewed multiple studies and put the incidence rate at approximately 7 to 12 percent, meaning that in those studies, 7 to 12 percent of the therapists surveyed, admitted to having some kind of sexual contact with a client. 7 to 12%. Do you know 10 therapists? And remember, these studies were based on self-reports. So those numbers represent therapists who were willing to say, presumably anonymously, but still, they were willing to admit to having had sexual contact with a client. The consensus among people who study and write about this topic is that the actual numbers are probably much higher. So obviously just agreeing that we shouldn't do that and then moving on isn't working. We are not doing a good job collectively at preventing this from happening. We need to have conversations about this at all in the first place. And those conversations need to be different than the ones most of us have been having most of the time. If you are a supervisor of pre-licensure clinicians, this especially concerns you because how you respond to a supervisee talking about sexual attraction to a client can easily be a make-or-break moment of whether they go on to act on that attraction. If you are a therapist to other therapists, topic of my last two episodes, this also especially concerns you. Because the chances that you will at some point have a therapist client who either has had a sexual relationship with a client or is considering doing so are really rather high. 
To guide us in wrestling with this very fraught subject in a deeper and broader and more generative way, I am so excited to bring you my conversation with psychologist and author Dr. Andrea Salenza. If you are new to Dr. Salenza's work, just go out and read any of her articles, buy any of her books. Her most recent work is Transference, Love, Being, Essays from the Field. I guarantee you that you will find something in any of her writing that will help you as a therapist. She's always dropping amazing insights and really elegantly articulated frameworks for understanding the therapeutic relationship. It was a huge privilege for me to get a chance to talk with her about sexual boundary violations, but about so much more than that, about the inherent riskiness of playing a role where we traffic in love about the divergent axes of power in the structure of the therapeutic relationship, about the vulnerabilities we all bring with us into this work, and the universe of paradoxes we have to make room for when we are really being honest about what it means to do this work. And just a note before we dive into Dr. Salenza's interview, I am giving a talk, it's online, webinar style, hosted by the Washington State Mental Health Professionals Listserv. It's in two days, on Friday, August 11th. It's called Confronting Our Stories, Recentering Narrative Work in Trauma Therapy. So if you are just dying to hear me talk more, you can come to that. You can register online. Link is in the show notes. And without further ado, here is Dr. Salenza. Hello, Dr. Salenza. Thank you so much for being on. I'm really excited to have this conversation today. Thanks, Reva. Thanks for asking me. So I'd love to start with just what you think is the, you know, I have a lot of early career clinicians who are listeners. So what you think it would be the most important thing for early career clinicians to know about sexual boundary violations? Well, I think first and foremost, what I'd like to say, especially to early career clinicians, is it would be really wonderful if everyone could look at this problem as a universal vulnerability. I say this over and over again in all of my writings, and the reason that I do is because I have, in the something like 400 consultations that I've done, or treatments or supervisions or whatever, I I have been struck by how much I can relate to the problems that they face. So that's one thing. But the second thing is that if we don't look at it as a universal vulnerability, then it gets shrouded in stigma. And then we tend to disown it and nobody gets help. The atmosphere becomes hostile and people can't come forward. One of the good benefits of um, the work that I've done that I'm most proud of is that I get contacted now by therapists, early career, late career, of all ilk, because they're afraid they're going to get involved with with a patient, and they get in touch with me ahead of time. And I like to think that I've been, I have a hand in preventing Uh, some of the difficulties that they could have gotten into. And you can only do that if the atmosphere is more tolerant of the problem. I don't mean to say that we should accept it or that it's it's an okay thing, but just that um, it's a very human thing. So that to view it as something that only a small subsection of clinicians would be vulnerable to 
means that we we don't create an atmosphere where we're willing to discuss this as those feelings, as those possibilities start to come up for clinicians and we create exactly. this atmosphere of silence. Yes. And you said also a sense of when you have, you know, spoken to and, and investigated or, or, you know, engaged with the people who have engaged in these violations, there's a sense of, it sounds like you're saying there's they don't seem like this completely other type of therapist that you can't relate to, that there's there's some relatability. It's something that realistically, whatever traits, characteristics, vulnerabilities that anyone that truly anyone could have some any number of those. Yeah, I mean, there are some risk factors that we have to and I know that we're going to get to them. But one of the things that a lot of us who've written about sexual boundary violations have also written about or stressed even is a pervasive sense of splitting within the profession, us versus them. You know, if you divide it that way and dichotomize it and say, well, those, those are the people that have the problem. I don't have the problem. Then you can ignore it and you cannot think about it and not not learn, you know, what are the things that could put me at risk? Right. So that also brings to mind for me, you've written extensively about erotic countertransference and those dynamics, which I think itself, even without the sexual boundary violation itself remains a very taboo topic, at least in the circles that I have professionally traveled in. Um, and I'm curious about how you think, you know, whether you think that the way we approach that topic as a profession collectively also contributes to the incidence of sexual boundary violations. What do you see as the relationship there? Well, I think there is a relationship. However, I, I want to say that I didn't get into writing about erotic countertransference or even erotic transference from my work with sexual boundary violations. Those two things were kind of separate and each was prompted by a series of patients and the patients were very different. So um, in my second book on erotic transference, erotic revelations, I think it's called, I focus on some cases where the possibility of a sexual boundary violation really was not an issue. But you are absolutely right to bring up the topic because it's another taboo area. Countertransference in general used to be taboo. You know, Freud thought of it originally as an interference to the treatment and would say to his colleagues, you know, you're having countertransference, go back to analysis, you know, but we have moved well beyond that by now and, and are very accepting of the fact that we basically traffic in love. We reach out to our patients. Our patients reach out to us in a loving, humane way. And in that, because of that, we're in treacherous territory because love is a four-letter word. And uh, where, where love is, erotic follows. Or I think, you know, you could argue they're one and the same thing. And so uh, we just have to not think of either of those topics as taboo. I really appreciate you saying that, that we tra traffic in love. I love that. I do think that that word, like love is, like to use that word in the context of therapy does often seem like it elicits a strong 
reaction for a lot of clinicians. I, I think I feel pretty comfortable with it personally, but that it's one of those things that if you talk about, people do start to get pretty skittish or pretty uncomfortable with the characterization of like, oh, this this is a prof- this is just a professional relationship, you know, and all that that implies. And yes, it is professional. And yet um, the level of intimacy is what makes the potential therapeutic transformation possible. So um, we're always juggling those two two pieces. Absolutely. Um, you you said this thing about us and them that you and other people who've done research on this topic find that this uh, that that's a very prevalent idea that like, oh, there's the people who transgress, the people who would have sex with a client. Um, I would never do that. We're over here. We're the good. We're the good therapists who wouldn't do that. They're the bad ones. And so, you know, in your your book, um, you've done some of the research on the the characteristics of the therapist, on the characteristics of the particular um, relationships, therapeutic relationships where this tends to occur. You talked about in the book that you don't present those as a way to say like, oh, I'm not like somebody who would transgress in this way, but to recognize the potential transgressor in all of us. Um, And I'd love for you to say more about, you know, when people do read your book or they do look into what these risk factors are, how you'd like people to engage with that content. If it's not to say like, oh, I can breathe a sigh of relief because I'm not with this, you know, I don't have these traits or I don't have these characteristics, but rather to recognize their own vulnerabilities. Absolutely. You know, I think I was on a panel once where the title was, this could never happen to me. And uh, that is something you just said. So, uh, I mean, you said it ironically, knowing that, of course, it could. But I want to address that in particular, because I think we do think that. And it's probably true for us right in this moment. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You know, and that Mm -hmm. and that's what I say to people when they say that to me. Well, I know I thought, you know, I find your work kind of interesting, but this would never happen. I would never do that. I said, yes, that's probably true in your current state of mind, but it is actually grandiose and omnipotent for you to think that you will always have a handle on yourself and on the work that you do for the rest of your life. You don't know what you're going to face and I'm not just talking about illnesses or, you know, stressors that we like to say, current stressors, divorce or whatever. Those are definitely fat risk factors, but they're not the only ones. There are risk factors. And I think I call them precursors in my uh, papers and in my book because I actually did uh, a controlled study looking at transgressors and comparing them to non-transgressors or therapists, actually, most of them were my friends. But anyway, um, my control group, um, you know, there was a tremendous overlap in terms of types of childhoods that they've had. I'll, I'll mention some of the characteristics, but I think I identified seven or eight in particular. And it led me to believe that, you know, there's a certain kind of therapist profile. There is, mm-hmm. it is not everybody goes into this uh, profession. I, my brother once said to me, why do you want to talk to people about their problems? You know, just go have fun, you know, or <laughs> my son, my son, uh, I love to tell this story. He's a very perceptive uh, 
now man, but when he was young, when he was like seven or eight years old, he had made a very perceptive comment about one of his friends. And I said, you know, Derek, that was really perceptive. If you want to, you could go into my profession, you know, if you want at some point. And he looked at me and said, mom, I don't want to talk to people about their problems all day. And so I thought to myself, I had a mixed reaction. I was like, oh, well, I guess we're not going to go to conferences together, you know. Actually, my younger son has just joined the profession, so I'm thrilled. But I said about my older son, I said, you know, he doesn't have the need. He has the capacity, but he doesn't have the need. We all do this because we have a need. Yes. And you, you must investigate what that need is personally for you. The precursors that I have found, and of course there are there is some variability, but there is a lot of overlap, and the overlap is what interests me. And the difference between the transgressors and the non-transgressors is really just one of degree. It is not of a qualitative difference. A lot of therapists have depressed mothers. Either they're depressed, or you could say frozen, you know, what Andre Green would call the dead mother. A lot of therapists have a, a distant or, or uninvolved father or perhaps a helpless father. And usually the, the marriage revolves around those two problems, which are related. Interestingly, the home is one that parallels the therapeutic relationship. And by that, I mean, you have someone who is ill mentally so that would be the parallel to the mother. But then you also have a kind of sexual overstimulation. A lot of the mothers of the transgressors were inadvertently or unconsciously seductive. This was a very interesting finding that I didn't anticipate at all. And um, I have a theory that a lot of the mothers suffer with some kind of repressed, perhaps incest or sexual abuse that they don't necessarily remember. So, and I've asked the, my um, transgressor subjects in my study, you know, do you know of any incest in your family or whatever? And most of the time they say no. So it's, uh, it's possibly, I don't have the data on this, but possibly uh, a repression so they walk around perhaps naked or, you know, they're unaware of their sexuality and they're unaware of, of how they may be stimulating in a sexual way. Their son, and I say son on purpose because it is largely a male problem, but not only. Right, right. Um, so they overstimulate their son, but they under respond emotionally. So that's a lot like a therapeutic setting where. We defer our needs. We are, you, you could say, emotionally deprived when we're doing therapy by choice, but still. Right. But it's, but the experience is real. Yes. Experience yeah. is real. And, and we're hearing about sex all the time is that's what our patients talk about. And so that is a direct parallel to the problematic early childhood uh, situation. There are a few other precursors. I won't go into all of them, but I think those are the important ones. 
Mm-hmm. Also, I, I want to emphasize that when I talk about these dynamics, especially in detail, I'm talking about one kind of transgressor, but it is the most common kind. And to me, the most interesting, we do have the crazy psychopathic predators who, you know, end up having sex with more than one patient. Our shorthand for that is the multiple offender. That's not interesting to me. <laughs> they shouldn't be in our profession. Right. Like fundamentally, they, they're predators. But they are predators. Not, yeah. Mm-hmm. Let's get rid of them. They're not right. rehabilitatable. Right. I, I, you know, my, I do draw the line with my own empathy there. <laughs> right. Yes. Um, but that's not the most common anyway. Um, and also I did mention that it's largely a male problem. You know, that is changing. And Interesting. we shouldn't be surprised because our profession is largely female now. And that doesn't mean that there's less sexual boundary violations. That's not true. We have more female transgressors now. Gotcha. Okay. So. Yeah. One of the things in your book that that really piqued my interest. So um, you talked about factors that have something to do with a therapist's self-image. Um, you know how, like, in terms of how they see themselves, and also how they wish to be seen by others. Um, and in particular, you identified an unwillingness to see themselves as having aggressive or hostile desires and a need to be constantly viewed as like a giving and nurturing figure. Um, and that really um, that really particularly interested me because those qualities of being like eternally giving and nurturing seem to be qualities that I find, you know, in our professional culture, we really reinforce of like that that's that's idealized as to be a constantly giving and nurturing figure. Um, and the the therapist cultures and subcultures that I've been a part of, um, it seems often taboo or we, you know, implicitly taboo at least to acknowledge feeling angry at a client or feeling transient feelings of hatred towards a client. People often don't want to acknowledge those things. Um, and in in our peer professional relationships, also wanting to be seen as always kind, giving, nurturing, supportive, and having a difficult time handling overt conflict. Um, and so I'm curious about what your experience with that and what your thoughts may be around how that potentially contributes to a professional culture that is tacitly, you know, making sexual boundary violations more common or more possible. So one of the other characteristics that is true about this very common form of sexual boundary violations is that it doesn't happen between a therapist and a patient who otherwise would be attracted to each other. It's not like, oh, you know, she's really attractive. If I met her in a bar, I think we'd date. It's, it's not like that. In fact, one of the therapists said to me, or many of them have said to me, you know, I never thought I would do this anyway. But when I look back, I can't believe I did it with this patient, you know? Uh So the most common dynamic is an attempt to control negative transference. Now, I know that I'm using psychoanalytic language, and I don't know if your listeners are psychoanalysts or psychoanalysts in training or whatever, but basically it's a patient who's difficult. It's a difficult treatment. And the erotic is used, the erotic transference, which is there. Actually, let me back up a little bit. 
the therapy tends to be bimodal. It has two phases. The first phase is a very idealizing phase where the therapist can do no wrong. You know, she, uh, I, I'll just use a heterosexual couple for ease of description. She thinks he's the greatest and he is very loving and he, he might find her uh, one of his favorite patients for a period of time. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, the erotic transference rears its head and she mm-hmm. starts to get frustrated. And she says, you know, can't we just have coffee? Can't we just meet at Starbucks? Can't we just walk around the park or whatever? He hopefully says, no, no, no. She gets more and more frustrated. And then it turns negative. This is when the erotic transference becomes a negative erotic transference. And I would venture to say probably the most important thing that I might say in this whole interview, which is the negative transference is an opportunity. It is a gift that we give or that we allow our patients because this is where their problems get all tangled up and reside. You know, there's a very famous, or I don't know how famous it is, but it's a funny joke that I like to tell about negative transference where there's a patient and he's in one hospital, let's say Mass General, and he's doing, seems to be doing fine, but he requests a transfer to another hospital. He wants to go to the Beth Israel. These are two very famous hospitals in the Boston area. So his new psychiatrist at Beth Israel is interviewing him, and he says, so tell me, how were things at Mass General? Because you requested a transfer, so I'm wondering why you requested a transfer. How was the unit? What did you think about you know, your room and, and, and the, the facilities? Oh, Mass General, this is the patient. Mass mm-hmm. General was the greatest hospital. It, it was the, the unit was fine. My room was really comfortable, can't complain. Oh, really? Okay. Well, how was the food? Oh, food was excellent. It was the best hospital food I could ever have had. Can't complain. Oh, well, how was your therapy? Therapist? Oh, best therapist I've ever had. It was wonderful. Can't complain. Well, that's really curious because you requested a transfer. So why did you transfer to Beth Israel? And the patient says, because here I can complain. (laughs) Uh-huh. And um, I think it's a really good thing to keep in mind that our patients need to complain. They need to get into the trouble. They don't need a smooth, loving, corrective emotional experience. I mean, they need that in the background. They need that for safety, but that's not where the trouble lies. So I was describing this bimodal therapy. The sexual boundary violation happens in the second phase when the patient is frustrated, angry, disappointed, critical, actually for the therapist, a lot of times becoming the reincarnation of his mother who was depressed and critical and, you know, unhappy. And the boundary violation is used in order to move the patient back to the idealizing phase. It's an, it's a manipulation Mm of the transference. Even though they're not experiencing, the therapist who's transgressing is not consciously experiencing that. That wouldn't, presumably, like that that wouldn't be how they describe why they're experiencing at this phase an attraction, 
seemingly irresistible attraction to their client. No, it's unconscious. This is an unconscious defense mechanism, which, you know, is my plug for everybody to go into psychoanalytic training because (laughs) things are so complicated and uh, not on the surface. No, the therapist will say, I just fell in love. I fell in love and she had all the power. I had no power. I know you say there's a power imbalance, but she had the power and Mm -hmm. throws up his hands. Right. I don't come from a psychoanalysis background, although um, I mentioned this on like every episode. So I'm sure my listeners are getting very tired of hearing me say I'm a third generation therapist, but I am a third generation therapist. And so my grandfather, my grandparents, because of when they were trained, um, you know, mid 20th century do come from, uh, you know, early mid 20th century do come from that, um, that background. So I think it's, you know, operating somewhere in my, in my, uh, you know, deep, deep programming there. But it's been really interesting, because some of these, these particular issues around like the erotic charge in the therapeutic relationship, you know, up to and including these boundary violations, when I've looked, and I've looked into, Um, wanting to understand this stuff better, it is unquestionably the psychoanalytic literature that has been the most helpful. I've really found a quite remarkable amount of silence, you know, and really superficiality around how this is engaged with in alternate therapeutic frameworks, which I do find um, very interesting. And, And of course, they happen in all of oh, the yes. frameworks. I mean, it's not <laughs> like it's only they only happen with psychoanalysts at all. In fact, one study shows the prevalence is slightly lower for psychoanalysts, but right. I don't know if it's true. It was only one study and it was only a little bit lower. <laughs> right. So, well, yeah. And yes. And I do find it really interesting because I think there's, I see, you know, people, you know, as you described, you know, when we first started talking, there's people who do try to they're trying to get ahead of it right there's a fear of like I feel this pull towards this client that somebody might feel and they want to get ahead of it by consulting you know going to a supervisor going to a peer and really they're not getting any um useful lens for understanding what is happening to them right um and that to me seems like such a key part of prevention is for someone to be able to understand that they're not just it's not just that they met their soulmate and it happened to be their client and now they're falling in love. Right. That they, they need some framework for understanding the dynamic that's happening. They need to talk about the complexity of it. They need to talk about the risk. Um, I can't tell you how many therapists finally come to me and they tell me that they went to other people first, uh, mm-hmm. usually a supervisor and the supervisor gets very nervous and says, you know, just talk to your therapist, talk to your therapist, you know. (laughs) And I find that to be, I mean, not only is it, you know, um, an abdication of a supervisor's responsibility, in my opinion, it's also problematic because therapists of therapists are not trained on how to help their therapist clients with this sort of thing. It's not like, as if you just, you know, they take the they take it to their therapist and their therapist knows what to do. Most therapists are not going to know what to do if somebody if a therapist client brings that into their office. Exactly. Um, yes. Yeah, that's right. Um, one thing you mentioned a moment ago about power, which I found really interesting. So, you know, that that in these cases, 
um, the therapist who has violated the boundary is going to say, like, this client had all the power. Like, I felt powerless. There's a real discomfort with the role of power that we occupy as the therapist in the in the therapeutic relationship. The response I've noticed that people have to um, their discomfort with that power is to try to reduce it as much as possible, try to reduce the power differential rather than utilize it um, and leverage it constructively. Um, and so I'm curious about how you think, you know, is that discomfort and, you know, disclaiming of being the party in the relationship who has the greater power? Um, do you think that contributes to, to creating a higher level of risk um, for I, these boundary violations? I absolutely love the way you put that, Riva. The, the way you said um, leveraging, rather than leveraging the power in such a way that would be healthy and that would be helpful. Um, yes, I absolutely believe that the disclaiming of the power is a problem because it's not disclaimable. Unless you turn the relationship into a friendship and then you have to wonder why is the patient paying the, <laughs> yes, uh, right. you know, because <laughs> yeah. the reason the patient is paying you is for the power imbalance. It is, please do not talk about yourself. This is about me, which means the power derives from the knowledge that the therapist gains over time about the patient and it's not balanced and it shouldn't be. And this is the greatest gift aside from the negative transference. It is a great gift that we give. It's not a gift because we're paid for it, but um, it is the structure. It's in the structure. It's a service. Yes. Yeah. It's a service. It's in the structure of the setting. And that's why the therapists don't necessarily feel powerful because it's not in their person. It's in the, it's in the setup. But there's another complicated uh, aspect, which is that the power imbalance actually goes both ways, but on, on, a, on different axes. So on the axis of knowledge, personal knowledge, the therapist has the power. The therapist knows a lot about the patient and not vice versa. However, it is part of our discipline that we have to exert Every minute of the hour, we have to put our needs aside. And that's different than not talking about ourselves. It's really suppressing what we emotionally require and need, even if we're in distress. We put it aside. And that is what we are disciplined to do. And in that way, the patient has the power because she decides what is going to be talked about. And by virtue of her being the patient, she is treated as special. So, you know, there's an elevation of the patient in that way. So it's, it's kind of contradictory, but orthogonal at the same time. And when I say orthogonal, I mean, it's about two different things, knowledge and specialness. And um, that's why it's possible for the, for the transgressors to say, she had all the power, I didn't have any power. Well, they're talking about whose emotions were front and center and whose emotional experience drove the content. I love how you frame that. I'm just thinking, and as, as a parent of a young child, I'm just thinking about how uh, 
how resonant that is, of course, with the parent-child relationship of, you know, when you have a young infant in so many, you know, in so many ways, the parent, the caregiver is the powerful, you know, the all-powerful party. And yet <laughs> um, the experience of the parent is is often one of powerlessness, complete subjection <laughs> to this other person's needs, right? And mm-hmm. so, and, I, and I've thought about um, the way that when we are in a position of power like that, it's often our experience of feeling powerless that is the most dangerous to the person that we have power over, right? If, if, if I feel completely subsumed by someone else's needs and I'm resentful of that, I'm angry, I feel powerless, that seems to me often the moments in which people are most likely to, to act out in a way that is harmful to the, the, the party who is in many ways less powerful. Um, and that seems, you know, to be reflected in what you're describing as these moments where somebody says like, you know, I was powerless to resist the sexual attraction or the romantic attraction between me and this client. I think that's right. I think that's exactly right. So in your book, you pointed out this um, to me, what is a very interesting piece that in a large number of cases, uh, the client involved um, in these cases where uh, the clinician has transgressed sexually, that the client involved is at some point acutely suicidal. And I I was talking about your book to a close friend and colleague of mine, and I mentioned this, and they were, you know, absolutely horrified, understandably, by that. Um, but I was very intrigued about why, um, you know, that seems um, significant that if it's, it's this common, I think you said over half of cases, um, you know, I have a lot of curiosity about why um, that seems to be um, a factor that contributes in some way when someone does this. And so I'm curious to hear about how you interpret this component. Like why does, you know, what does acute suicidality tell us about what may lead a vulnerable therapist to act out sexually with a client? Absolutely. You know, there was only one study that showed it was over half of the, okay. um, so I don't want to overemphasize that statistic, but in my experience clinically with this uh, group of transgressors, and I've seen like a lot at this point, it's really very prevalent. And I, I want to refer again to that bimodal character of the therapies. It's in the second phase of the treatment when the patient is becoming really frustrated, disappointed, de-idealizing, critical, overtly critical. It's a very difficult thing for the patient to feel because basically she, and I'll say she, because most of the victims are she, even, Mm -hmm. even if the therapist is female. So we can also talk about that, but um, because the dynamic is different there, but anyhow, um, she's feeling rejected. And so, you know, whatever dynamics brought her into treatment in the first place, everything's getting exacerbated. And, you know, she will often say something like, this is making me worse. This treatment is making me worse. You know, I came in feeling like this and now it's, 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 it's happening again. And, you know, I don't know how much the suicidality is a real suicidality or if it is a threat of suicidality, but it's often hard to tell the difference between those two anyway. 
one therapist said to me, you know, I was at the end of my rope. I had tried everything with her. I had tried to calm her down in every way I knew. And I didn't know what else to do. I knew how to seduce her. So that's mm -hmm. what I did. Mm -hmm. Again, it's, it's a way to address the distress of, of the patient. Glenn Gabbard, who is a very close friend and colleague and has also written, I'm sure you know, a lot about this, has a paper and the title is Does Sex Cure Suicide? Which I think says it all. <laughs> it doesn't. In case you were wondering. <laughs> right. I, I would imagine the implicit answer is, is no. No. <laughs> but that there's a, that that's part of the impetus is yes. a, is a, is a attempt to control and soothe. It's, it's actually an attempt to control. That is the take home message. It's an attempt to control the negative transference. Which, mm -hmm. That's the, the, the heterosexual Male therapist, female dynamic, the most common, the most common. When you have a different scenario, I have seen a lot of female transgressors, not the same prevalence, but still it's up there. And the female transgressors, two thirds of the time, violate female patients. So there's a homoerotic dynamic going on. And if you look closely into what makes up that tension and what is the attraction about, it's not about control. It's an over-identification. The female therapist says to herself at some point, she was the child I was, and I couldn't stand the pain she was in. I had to do something to help her. Okay. Okay. I think you've touched on this a little bit, but I'm I'm very interested. Um, you describe the therapist-client dyad as one in which there's an irreducible tension between multiple levels of reality and that the field would benefit if there were more open acknowledgement of the inherent difficulty of sustaining and tolerating this tension. Um, and I'd love to hear uh, you describe more about this frame for understanding the therapeutic dyad and why it's important for preventing these kinds of uh, sexual boundary violations. Yes. You know, I, I come to this writing with an assumption about human character that can be captured just by one word, which is multiplicity. We are multiple people. We are multiple genders we have multiple roles, we're multiple ages, <laughs> and uh, maybe we're multiple ethnicities too. Actually, I think we are. So I think that we have to tolerate all kinds of tensions and not disclaim any one or the other. We are very complex beings. But to simplify it a little bit, we could say that whenever there are two people in the room, there are two humans, two persons, there are two predominant genders, and then there are two predominant roles, doctor, patient. And we put those front and center. We put that front and center when it's a therapeutic relationship. But it's really important to hold these tensions and to understand that we are always all these things, even if we're putting some on the back burner. Because 
In the psychoanalytic literature, again, I'm going to refer to it, uh, Freud left us with a confusion, many, but (laughs) one in particular that I find very interesting, which is about transference in general. And he talked about transference in one of my favorite papers, which is called Observations on Transference Love. I have an essay on this in my third book. If I could plug my third book, which is called Transference, Love, and Being, Essential Essays from the Field. It's the first essay because I think it's the most important. Freud said, what is the nature of transference? Is it real or is it unreal? And, you know, he kind of straddled both sides. And throughout his writing, he sometimes talked about it as one thing and he talked about it as another. I actually think it's a false dichotomy. I think that all of our relationships have transference in them and they're all real. Just because we have contradictory identities that we're bringing forth and in involve engaging with differently doesn't mean one is more real than, than another. And we have to hold these tensions because a lot of times uh, the transgressor will say to me, oh no, but, but this was real. You know, the, it was the man woman part was real. The doctor patient part was not real. That was transference. Well, that, that is a total theoretical confusion because they're all real. Mm-hmm. And, and we have to, you know, capture that and tolerate that multiplicity all the time. And so like the irreducibility part is this sense of some of those relationships between all the different versions of ourselves, all the different parts of ourselves. Some of those relationships are inherently contradictory to each other. And and there's not a resolution to that. It's about being able to tolerate it versus resolve or fix or figure out how to make it not that way. It just exactly. is that way. Yes. Exactly. I, I I love the way you just put that. There a lot of these relationships are contradictory and they are not to be resolved. It they just are. This is what it means to be human. We don't have an essence. We have many beings. We are we have many facets. We bring different ones to the foreground at different times. Insofar as just we're all a part of co-creating this culture of our profession. You know, that's something I really talk a lot about on this show, that we're all contributing to a professional culture between therapists, all you know, with how we practice and how we are with each other. What changes could therapists make in terms of our relationships with colleagues, supervisees, um, you know, the professional discourse in general that would actually truly contribute to helping prevent sexual boundary violations beyond just like we all agree that that's bad, you know? <laughs> I know. I, know. <laughs> we, I think we have to Actually, I think that's really funny. Um, but that, but it's true. Um, of course, we all agree that it's bad, but that doesn't solve anything. Yeah. I think we have to understand. We have to uh, be curious about what is what draws people to this, and also it's sort of like the way we treat any kind of mental problem. We are curious about it. Can we find it in ourselves? What is human about it? In that attitude, what is human about it? 
that is the thing that I think is most important because it will allow people to get help. We're sort of ending this interview in the same way we started out. We need to understand that we are comrades in this on this journey, and uh, it's difficult. It's really difficult. I never thought when I, I, I have always wanted to be a therapist since I was like eight years old. And I never thought it was going to be this hard. <laughs> I, you know, I just thought, oh, well, you know, people will, they need help. I'll help them and then they'll be happy. <laughs> <laughs> right. and, and, they'll, and they'll be grateful. No. Uh-huh. <laughs> right. Yes. <laughs> it is so much more complicated. So uh, we really need to kind of be supportive of each other. And uh, having committees that uh, are designed to, you know, basically be garbage pails and, you know, just sort of exclude people. And this is what happens in institutes and clinics and institutions of all sorts. They just sort of fall off a cliff. That's not helpful. It's actually, it's actually, forget the committees, just, you know, deal with a kind of understanding atmosphere as we would toward any mental problem and be curious about it. In the words of Harry Stack Sullivan, we are, uh, we're all much more human than otherwise. Mm, I love that. Thank you so much. This was full of gems. Um, I'm so excited. And thank you so much for being on the show. You're very welcome, Reva. Thank you for asking me. And you asked very, very substantive and pointed questions. You, you covered it. You can find Dr. Salenza's work at andreasalenza.com. If you're enjoying A Therapist Can't Say That, please rate, review, and follow the show wherever you listen to podcasts. And please don't forget to share the show with a therapist friend who you know really wants to talk about the things it feels like a therapist can't say. As always, you can find me, Reva Stout, at intothewoodsportland.com. I love hearing your thoughts, feedback, critiques, complaints, compliments, suggestions, and of course your A Therapist Can't Say That moments. Feel free to reach out to me via email or sending me a voice note to reva at intothewoodsportland.com. Talk to you next time. Bada bing, bada boom.